President and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on SiriusXM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETF Sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. We're joined by Professor Siegel for some market commentary here to start the show. Uh, please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. And our discussion today is not a recommendation for any trading strategies or tie to the offer sale investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. Interesting week in the markets. We have uh, a guest in the studio with us, Jason Pride, Director of Investment Strategy at Glenmead. Uh, he'll be joining us for the full show here today. Uh, the first part of the program, we also have Mark Chandler, Senior Vice President and Head of Market Strategy at Brown Brothers Harriman, to talk about currencies, outlooks for the Fed, and just the overall economic activity. Uh, Professor, though, can we get some quick commentary from you? How are you thinking about the markets here, the aftermath of the Fed decision? I know Jason has some comments we're going to talk to him about there. Uh, also, oil coming down here under pressure this week. Any any big thoughts on the markets? Yeah, I mean, oil oil at 43, I mean, wow. Uh, I mean, that's a big story. Um, uh, you know, I think energy is still only about 8% of the market, but don't forget the way they calculate earnings on the S&P, as we've mentioned often before, they do not weight earnings by market value. So, you know, if, if you know, if, even though it's not a big part of the market, it could definitely affect the earnings estimate. Uh, that, that said, we finally got a positive surprise on home sales. The Citibank Economic Surprise Index had really gone down, and we were really underperforming um, on virtually every index that was coming out. Not, not to threaten a recession, but certainly uh, no robust growth at all. But you know, we've got some pretty good new home. That's not a real important index. Um, the market PMIs that come in about a week before the official government numbers, we're actually on the slightly firm side. But we're, you know, let's face it, we're, we're going to be at about 2728 uh, at the, this quarter. Um, and, uh, you know, the first half, we're just going to be barely too. We have not at all accelerated economic growth at all. And it's going to be very interesting to see the June um, uh, report that comes out on the first Friday of, of July. Uh, as you know, it was very, very weak last June, and to see whether that weakness actually continues and what happens, participation rate and the unemployment rate. Of course, uh, we have the 10-year down at 215, um, and that keeps mortgage rates down and the interest rates down. Uh, I do want to correct something I did say last week. I thought that most of the uh, runoff um, was going to um, be on the short end, not the long end, when the Fed finally decides to reduce its balance sheet, when I've read it in more detail, it's a rather complicated equation because there's a, there's a cap, and um, the, the long end runs down in a very irregular way. But it's going to be mostly long run uh, that's going to run down, uh, slightly more than short run. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, they've extended over the last five years, six years since the crisis, the maturity of their portfolio, so they're trying to get it back to mostly shorts. 
Um, and again, we don't know what, <laughs> what date it's going to start. We don't know what it's going to end. We don't know what level it's going to end at. So, I mean, there's huge numbers of uncertainty, although, you know, the talk of the town. There's no question that the term structure is the flattest it's been uh, for quite a long since before the crisis. And there, there, are, there are obviously some people out there that are worrying that we're getting it too flat. And um, because, as we know, the single most important indicator of a recession in the economy is the flatness of the term structure or the inversion of the term structure. So, I mean, I don't think we got anything like that going on, but the, the the Fed is going to be really, really careful. With oil down here, you're going to get gasoline down. Gasoline is way down. Uh, they're going to be have a hard time hitting their inflation targets. So there's going to be a lot of caution going forward um, uh, in into the future to see whether they, uh, you know, as I said even last week, um, uh, pause in September, uh, December is certainly not a slam dunk, uh, depending on what happens to the price level and the rest of the economy. So I was talking with Jason over lunch, and we were talking about what he thinks of the Fed's uh, decision here. Maybe sort of talk through, when you think about the, the balance sheet reduction you see, and then I'm going to guess Jason to weigh in, um, how do you think about that as a, in context of substituting for rate hikes um, in terms of how yeah. much of a rate hike is at the right pace, what you've seen so far? Mm-hmm. What do you think, Mark? Or, or Jason? Yeah, so I, I think this is a, I think this is an interesting uh, situation. We think actually it's not getting anywhere near enough attention at this point in time. I feel like I'm seeing very little written about the downsizing of the Fed's balance sheet. You know, the Atlanta Fed, a couple of economists over at the Atlanta Fed published a study uh, that they put out uh, suggesting or or estimating the impact of the balance sheet expansion back in back in time and they said it basically when we are ratcheting up the balance sheet it equated to effectively uh short-term interest rates of minus three percent that big of a magnitude the magnitude they're putting forward now in terms of balance sheet tightening is somewhere around two-thirds to three-quarters of that sort of pace of uh of of the previous expansion which would lead you to an addition, effectively an additional rate hike of about two percent, on top of the short-term interest rate hikes that they're already putting on the table, which we've been kind of highlighting to some of our some of our clients and some of the people that we've been discussing uh, with this about that 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 sort of pace finally crosses that line in our mind as to what's absorbable by this economy. The yeah, the other I, the pace we've been well, doing forget, so far was the, perfectly fine. The short rate is way too. They're pretty, their target for the short rate of three percent is way too high. Yeah, um, I've been saying that that most it's going to be two percent, and they're going to get there very, very slowly. And 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 very clearly, they're going to be looking at the effect on the long rate. And if, if it really starts going up and, and crimping economic activities, they're just going to stop. Uh, you know, the, the question is the lags. Will they? You know, how they recognize it and how long that lag will be. Um, you know, as I say, the, the term structure is already very flat. The market's clearly worried, I mean, that the term structure is flat and um, flattening. So that's why I say that even December is not a slam dunk for the FOMC. Well, maybe the good thing to kind of go along with what you're saying there is they've 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 posited this idea. They haven't really necessarily set it in motion, right? They put no, it out there they, and they've they've also said we're 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 gonna start at ten billion effectively $10 billion per month, and we're only going to go up in increments of $10 billion uh, in bond sales per month once a quarter. 
if we yeah, follow and along the, treasury, the path. They're also going to do MBS too, aren't they? Well, yeah, the $10 billion is is $6 billion treasuries plus $4 billion oh, okay, MBSs, okay. right? Good so they're vote. only going to increase it once a quarter, which actually gives them a three-week window to watch the data before they decide upon the next increase, right? So they can, they may have a, a, a path or a plan here for increasing that allows them to evaluate it along the way. I yeah. I still look at it and just say, well, just keep your antenna up because the plan that they've outlined looks like us. It's a it's a plan to a path that's a little bit too tight. And what's well, more than ten billion a quarter, ten billion a month, right? Four. So, sorry, ten billion a month, but they're right. but they're changing it once a quarter. They're upping it yeah, once a quarter. Ten billion a quarter is one hundred twenty billion. That's added to the deficit, whatever the deficit's going to be. So if we ever get infrastructure spending. Those two bond sales are going to be hitting the market, both from the de- from from the government, which we know even if there's not a deficit, there's going to be bond sales hitting from the government, and there's going to be bond sales hitting from the Fed. So the question is, will the market be as anxious to continue to hold government debt as it has been over the last six years? Yeah, yeah, and I think that's I mean, the. I mean, it's a that's the question. I mean. As long, you know, I mean, it's been the most demanded asset in the world, just about it. Also, with sovereigns in in, in Europe, uh, I mean, people can't get enough of government debt. I mean, we're still so a high oil country is, compared to uh... the economy. Of the economy, uh, you know, starts doing better, and there's private debt issuance. Um, you know, then the, the the enthusiasm for the government debt will, you know, could go down. Um, but again, they're going to be monitored closely. They have no start date. Um, and my feeling is that uh, honestly, they're. I, I think they're going to end up at one and a half to two. I, 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 I mean, they already said they're not going down to the eight hundred million billion they had before. I mean, they're they're, they're going to. Well, they already have currency way above that at one point two. So I think I think they're going to go. I think going to go at about two billion, and they're going to just put much bigger reserve requirements on it. The banks aren't going to mind because they pay interest on reserves anyway. So they're nowhere near the. Bur- Interest rates are nowhere near the burden now that they were prior to the crisis when they paid zero interest on reserves. So the banks will say, fine, and they're tier one capital, and, you know, they contage all those accords, and then and they're getting a damn good interest rate on them. That's why they're holding, you know, two, two $3 billion of excess right now that they don't even have to hold. So, you know, I, 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 they may not go down that much. And, and in, in fact, it's not clear... As they state, where they're going to go to the old way of of of, of creating an artificial, you know, uh, uh, deficiency of Fed funds, the way they used to classically for a hundred years, from their foundation in 1913 all the way to the crisis, uh, to create the federal funds rate, they may decide, and oh, we just love the way to do it this way. We're just going to change the interest rate on reserves. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's the way we're going to do it. Uh, now that will mean less money probably to the Treasury because they used to pay zero on it, but they're going to have much more reserves on there, and as long as they have a pretty deep term structure and they buy some longs, they're going to get some profits. Um, you know, not as much as they get now. So there's political things that kind of come in here. Um, I, I, I actually think on top, on top of the with the pace of the taper, is who he's going to replace Janet Yellen with, if indeed he does. Um, which, interestingly enough. There's some people who, who say he may, in the end, decide not to. Hmm. Um, 
Let me uh, bring Mark in the, in the conversation real quickly. Mark Chandler, who's the uh, Director of Investment Strategy, Global Head of Market Strategy at Brown Brothers Herman. Mark, you've been listening to this initial conversation on the Fed, um, the central bank activity. I know you follow the economy and markets closely here as well. Uh, maybe you can just weigh in on what you've heard so far and how, how you're looking at the Fed's uh, decision in context of, of the future here. Yeah, I'm just like surprised. I mean, I just how fast the pendulum of market sentiment has swung from the Fed being too dovish to now the Fed being too hawkish. I think the Federal Reserve yeah. made a transition in their thinking from watching economic data to see the strength of the recovery to now where they are confident of the resilience of the U.S. economy. So that means that, one, I think they're going to put the asset purchases, uh, excuse me, the unwinding of QE on autom- automatic pilot. They're not going to have to make a decision every week or every, every meeting whether to increase it or quarterly even. I think it's going to be on automatic pilot. I think that Janet Yellen at the end of her press conference, when pressed on when she wants to begin it, she said relatively soon. And when I try to figure out what does relatively soon mean for the Fed, I think it means two meetings, which means I think that they announced in September that they will begin unwinding the balance sheet as of October. And that buys them the time to watch the inflation and watch how the economy evolves before hiking rates in December if the economic data warrants it. And I suggest that the current conditions would warrant that, since obviously they just hiked rates in June, if the economic conditions don't change that much. That is, if we continue to grow the labor market, and that speaks to Dudley and Yellen's fascination with the Phillips curve, Mm -hmm. that that will give them confidence that demand will come back, and that over time, price pressures will increase. Yeah, I mean, there's no question the Phillips curve is still very dominant in the Fed's uh, thinking and, uh, you know, with unemployment of four or three, way below, they keep on lowering the natural rate by maybe one tenth of these quarterly meetings, but we're well below that. Um, and, um, uh, and some people, of course, have questions about whether it's that high. But, you know, if we, if we just generate 150,000 jobs a month, which is poor compared to the last five years, that's still given demographic supply is tightening that market unless we get a big increase in the participation rate. People say there's jobs out there that I really want to get. We get an increase in participation rate that keeps the unemployment rate stable at this level with 150, 175,000. Um, you know, that could stay the hand of the Fed for a while. But after some early optimism earlier this year that the participation rate has gone up, it's actually gone back down again. Um, so, it, you know, it doesn't, I think it, yeah, because and the infrastructure is farther away than ever in terms of generating these, these jobs. I think the key here, Professor, is really what the Fed thinks trend growth is. If trend growth in the economy, that's the non-inflationary pace, is only about 1.8%. And they're not growing that far from it. In fact, I kind of think that these people who are talking about the economy slowing, they're looking in the rearview mirror. Yes, the economy slowed. We know that in Q1. So we'll get the upward revision likely this week. Average growth in that Q1 has only been 1.1 percent since 2009. Rest of the quarters, average growth two and a half percent. So I won't be surprised, given the economic data we already know, that growth picked up in Q2 to back around at two to two and a quarter percent. Yeah, but the year over year it's just basically two two and a half. I mean, now the productivity has been lousy, right? Absolutely, and that's the question of whether we're measuring it right. But non-farm pr- productivity, you know. Has, has gone down nearly 2%. I mean, yeah, it's, it, it's, really it's, the worst, the, it's the worst we have ever had in an expansion in history. 
Okay, but what that means is that we've employed a lot of people. That uh, what we've had we've seen employment data. Yes, we've employed a lot of people, and so that's the good news from it. And so the argument runs something like this: Why aren't? What's the key to productivity? It's going to be capital investment. Our businesses begin to invest more. It looks but like they are in the capital market. investment that they find persuasive to increase productivity. And, and capital is so cheap, why don't they put it in? Because they don't see anything. They don't, they don't see anything. Well, it's interesting because I've been just talking to a woman who wrote an article in the, uh, it was a cover issue for a Harvard Business Review. The, uh, I think it was the March-April issue. It was the superabundance of capital, which she argues, and this dovetails with my uh, a new book I've written, and what she argues is, in essence, is that businesses are still, when they have a threshold for investment, they're still looking at like 6 to 7%. When the cost of capital has fallen, they have, businesses haven't adjusted their threshold, which means uh, that project. Everyone else has. I mean, uh, they know what bonds are going for. They know what their corporate bonds are going for. At, at 20 PE, they're getting their equity specials. at 5%. I, 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 I honestly... I mean, yeah, they may see some, some. I don't think there's anything persuasive they're investing. I don't think there's anything that they see. That they're satisfying demand. They don't need to buy plant equipment. Plant equipment isn't the thing anymore. And what, 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 are, what are the big tech companies investing in? Where is the capital needed there? We don't live in a capital society anymore where we need heavy capital. Jason, let me pull you into the, the conversation here. All intellectual capital. So, but, we don't need capital. So I guess it's a totally I guess different, it's a totally different world, and and there's and they don't see anything on the, on the capital side that they need to invest in. That's why the demand is so really low, even though the cost is so very low. It seems to me like these arguments are exact arguments as to why the Federal Reserve should not be moving quite as fast as That's what correct. they recently communicated. Absolutely. That's why they're. I think I think they are moving. They, I think they're too, moving too fast. I think they're too fixated on the Phillips curve, which I still have belief in in some ways. But, I mean, Greenspan saw back in the expansion of the 90s that he could tolerate a lot lower rates um, without inflation. Let it all go into threes. I think the point is that financial conditions, despite, I mean, I don't think the Fed's been very aggressive given where we are, real interest rates. But even if you think the Fed's being a bit aggressive, you still got these financial conditions, which are easier today than they were when the Fed began raising interest rates. They're easy they financial conditions for nothing for, for, for business to invest in. I think there but might be a difference here between what we're and saying. And very, and very little growth in capital and very little growth in productivity, so why do they have to invest? I think I mean, they, just, uh, they don't see anything to invest in that, uh, that, that they need to. Even they know it's cheap, but they say, yeah, tell me, what to, why should I do this? I think there may be a difference here between what, what we're saying about how the Fed has been acting recently up until now and what we're projecting is the pace of Fed tightening that they're putting forth uh, in, in, in their kind of hypothetical actions and, and run rate over the next uh, year or so. There seems to be a difference in yeah, pace those, here that they're yeah, setting. We know the one, those dots are really printed on it. I mean, they're they're written on tissue paper. <laughs> they they make their decision almost. Let's face it. Well, I think I mean, that's but that, I think that's projected. the important point is that people need to recognize that the that the projection that was put out there uh, right now that was very much a that was very much a hypothesis as to what they could possibly do, and then it's going to be something they'll probably 
kind of review, adjust, and even okay. even adjust on a quarterly basis as they kind of and I, and review I do, these I do have ten billion go. dollar it's numbers. A fascinating conversation. I wish I could stay. I just want everyone to remember that five years ago, Bernanke said we would have to start tightening when the unemployment rate got to six and a half percent. <laughs> <laughs> just want to remind you of that, Professor. Guys, thanks have a great for conversation. Th- thanks for thanks your for, time. Thanks for letting me in. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Professor. We've been talking with Professor Siegel here. We've got on the phone Mark Chandler, uh, head of investment strategy, uh, global market strategy. Brown Brothers Harriman. We've got Jason Pride in the studio, Director of Investment Strategy at Glenmead. Uh, and Jason, so I know one of the things you were worried about, the Fed moving too quickly over hiking. How do you think about this as, as the professor said, the recession indicator being if we get an inverted yield curve? I mean, do you worry that we're, how do you measure sort of this recession potential here and, and think about excesses in the economy if we're, we're getting there? Yeah. So, I mean, at, at the end of the day, recessions are caused by, they're not they're not caused by how long the expansion has gone on. We need to clear that right now. Uh, a number of people point to seven or eight years and say, hey, this is, you know, it, it's about time. It's about time for a recession to come about. Reality is that in the U.S., that range has been between, you know, um, one, I think is one year, three months on the short side and almost 12 years on the long side. And if you look internationally, there's an expansion that's gone on 26 years in Australia. So uh, we can't use a year mile marker as as a gauge for how to judge recessions uh, as being coming. What we can do is we can think about what typically causes recessions. And re- recessions tend to be caused, I'd put it into kind of three three categories. One is, let's face it, the Fed has a pretty good hand in, in causing some of them occasionally by, t- by tightening a little bit too hard. And that's why th- I think this discussion is fairly appropriate. Yeah, very Number two is excesses in the system kind of unwinding. And those, the unwind of those excesses causing enough of a hit on macro level kind of economy level growth that actually throws us into a couple quarters of, of, of negative growth. And the third one being a geopolitical event that causes some sort of temporary or we'll say intermediary time frame event that actually has an economic impact on the on the broad economy. Now the oil spike in the seventies and the resulting inflation that kind of came from that, I would think I would put that as at least partly tied to, to a geopolitical event, which is why I named that as the third. Right. So we have to kind of go through the list of those items. Well, the Fed is tightening, so that should yeah. be on our radar. Right? Anytime they're tightening, the possibility of a policy mistake has to be higher than when they're not tightening, by definition. Right. So that should be there. In terms of excesses, I think it's kind of interesting. We've been doing some work on this. And you know, you can use a number of different measures. You can use GDP gap. You can use capacity utilization. Uh, you can look at... Um, uh, business fixed investment spending. Uh, you can look at uh, consumer spending relative to trend. Uh, you can look at employment markets to see if the overall um, you know labor force is overemployed. On the whole, we have to admit we're not seeing the level of excesses that are typical of giving you a high probability of seeing a recession within the next 12 months. Um, just from a level perspective. So we kind of sit back and say, well, this is, we are in the eighth year of an expansion, but it kind of feels like the second or third in terms of where the economy actually sits relative to its potential economic activity. Very good. And so, Mark, I know you, you know, obviously focus, we talked a lot about the Fed here at the beginning of the show. Um, you also focus on the currency markets. I mean, how do you think, uh, as, as you hear all this discussion and we sort of wrap up any commentary from the Fed part in the first part, 
how do you break this down towards what you think is happening in, in the currency markets and your, your outlook there? Yeah, so uh, for me, the uh, because of the kind of world we live in with the uh, QE, with central banks so important, I find that the currencies, the dollars, especially against the euro and yen, are still very highly correlated to interest rates. That's because we have lower interest rates, despite the Fed raising interest rates. Yeah. We have lower interest rates than we did, say, the 10-year bond yield. Uh, we're, uh, we're basically last December, last November levels. And so the lower interest rates, I think, are acting as a bit of a drag on the dollar and my bullish dollar outlook. Uh, but I think that we're still very close to a turn here. I think that, like I say, I think we get that strong economic data. I think the, uh, I think that the, a lot of good news in Europe is well known now and discounting the market. And so I'm looking for the dollar to recover. But I think that dollar recovery is going to be a function of wider interest rate differentials between the U.S., Europe and between the U.S. and Japan, just not happening yet. I, Mark, I, I, I want to discuss this. This is something that we've been discussing in house. I, I wonder how many people actually fully believe that uh, that that GDP number that that we saw. And the reason I say that, and you kind of hinted at it, but I'll, I'll take it the rest of the way. You said we've seen we've seen first quarter GDP growth weakness for the past nine years. Well, this is supposed to be seasonally adjusted data. The bad seasonal adjustment as people talk about. Right. Yeah, is it is it really 1.1, 1.2%? I suspect we're actually sitting a lot closer to 2% than what the numbers come out at due to a bad seasonal adjustment. I think my, my speculation is as a result of how the financial crisis of 08, 09 still affects those seasonal adjustment calculations. Yeah, no, I, I buy. I, I agree with you. I mean, I just don't. Ha- I haven't done the work myself to really understand, like, why they still are so far off. I just, for me, it's for me, it's a sense that uh, there's something quirky going on, and I try to look past it. Which is why I think the Federal Reserve wants to look past this uh, this soft patch. That they think the economy is still fairly resilient. And I think, I, like I say, I mean, I think that uh, for me, I look at things like the PMI, leading economic indicators. No real sign that the U.S. economy is having serious difficulty, and I agree with you. No serious uh, major equal, uh, disequilibrium or something that would throw the economy off in a way that the Fed would have to respond to. Yeah, I'll even I'll even uh, pick up uh, Siegel's typical mantle probably, and say that there's this kind of disparity even in the numbers between what you see coming out of the government data, which all has this seasonal adjustment baked, a seasonal adjustment baked into it, and all has kind of weakness in the first quarter. And what we're seeing out of corporate earnings, we just saw one of the strongest corporate earnings uh, numbers we've seen in quite some time. You know, thirteen point nine percent in the first quarter for uh, for the S and P five hundred. When we thought, you know, everybody came into the year thinking we were going to have eight percent or so uh, earnings growth, we saw thirteen point nine percent. It seems it seems like the evidence of the data is more on the. The economy is actually nice, healthy, and strong, and corporates are do- corporations are doing just fine. Now, one of the interesting things is, and when we have Siegel talk about this a lot, he points to one of the things that's led to a good earnings environment is that we had a weak dollar, and there is when you had the stronger dollar, that was erasing a lot of earnings from yeah. the, the multinationals. And Mark, you know, I don't know, Mark, we've talked about this concept a little bit before, but um, when you think about a strong dollar environment, how much do you think in aggregate on something like the a dollar index? that you would be looking for over time, uh, and then that could be another headwind on earnings? Yeah, no, I, I, think, I think you're right. I mean, people, people do look at that. I'm, uh, I guess, how would I think of it? I guess I, guess I think of uh, the strong dollar tends to have, uh, initially, 
the real thing, I think, and is that it doesn't so much affect exports as it affects imports. And so when you get a strong dollar, Americans go shopping more and we buy more imports. When you really look at how the strong dollar impacts like economic behavior, it doesn't look like our exports really suffer so much. It's really more that the imports surge. Uh, but I, I, but in the big picture thing, of course, I think that the dollar is not really driven by these, this trade in goods and services. Because when you look at capital flows, think about the foreign exchange market, which is really why I love it. Over $5 trillion a day is changing hands. So give me a week. So this week uh, we had uh, say roughly $25 trillion go through the foreign exchange market. World trade in a year is about $25 trillion. So I really think when I look at trying to figure out the foreign exchange market, to tell you the truth, I, I, of course, I look at the U.S. trade figures more for the growth implications and more for the, like, the industry, what's going on, not so much for its impact mm-hmm. on the dollar. So um, we, we've talked a little bit about the dollar versus euro and yen. I mean, how do you think about emerging markets today? I mean, that's, they've been under pressure the last four or five years. Certainly, China's been doing ramping up in some ways their their sort of fiscal side that's helping support a lot of the global markets and I think the emerging markets generally. Do you do you have a view on China? Do you have a view on the emerging markets generally? Well, I, you know, that's a really big surprise for me this year. You think that the Fed's tightening uh, December, March promising more rate hikes, and yet the emerging markets, equities, are something like 18% here in the first half of the year, They're extremely well. And I think part of it is the valuation. Secondly, part of it is the decline in U.S. interest rates. And I think you're right, part of it has been the China story. I think the real story this past week has really been that Russia, Argentina, and China all either sold or announced issuing dollar-denominated bonds. Argentina sold a 100-year dollar bond in the beginning of the week, uh, yielding almost 8%. To me, that's the, uh, this is going to end up to be coming back and biting people. Again, this is the original sin. Countries borrowing in currencies that they do not really control, don't have the printing press for. And so it might work for a while, but uh, in the long run, this kind of currency mismatch, if it is a currency mismatch, a country like Russia has dollar receivables from the oil, so they issue a dollar bond, they can pay, they can appreciate how that is not a mismatch. And other countries who borrow dollars who might not have those dollars at cheap prices, especially in the Fed tightening mode. Jason, how do you, th- you think about emerging markets today? We do. I mean, I think there's there's a fairly interesting um, other news item this week with China being actually added, their A shares being yep. added to the MSCI indexes. That was kind of an interesting milestone for them. Um, that I think is more representative of, of, a, of a broader trend for the emerging market uh, areas. The emerging markets are, they're, they're not quite as emerging as they used to be, right? Some of them are actually doing a lot of things that are a lot more like what we see the developed markets typically do. And I think that might be why you find some investors willing to say, hey, you know, the these valuations, maybe it makes sense to actually move into emerging markets as at these valuations. Uh, I would take that one step further, though, and and say that it, as an investor, uh, we think that you're you're advantaged to take a slightly different stance than just buying emerging markets broadly. We think that um, the biggest thing that happens as those economies evolve and become more developed is that the consumer base becomes more developed. Mm-hmm. Their consumer base moves up the value chain in terms of what they purchase and how much they purchase of those of those goods. So we have been a fairly long-term advocate 
of tilting the entire emerging market complex, particularly within Asia, towards a consumer-oriented allocation. We've found that the market has yet to fully appreciate that and, mm. and maybe even overvalue it the way it yep. probably should be overvaluing it in order to reflect what's going on within that, that, that consumer dynamic. Well, let's come back to that on the second part. Let me just get some closing thoughts. Mark, I know you, you're pressed for time here. Um, we talked about a lot of different topics, but any sort of final closing thoughts uh, as you think about the economy, this, the currencies, interest rates, any last things we didn't cover yet? Yeah, I think one thing we didn't talk about really much is politics, probably for a good reason. I think <laughs> that uh, we've got some big issues coming up in the next couple of months. I think that next week, we could see action from Washington on the steel trade, and it depends on how aggressive we are, which would, I think will really influence the tone of U.S.-European relations over the summer. And remember, at the end of September, we've got to get that uh, we need the debt ceiling lifted and the, uh, the next year's budget. And this is going to be a real legislative test. And I'm afraid that until we see these things, I think people are going to, investors are going to be suspect of the legislative agenda, the effectiveness of the current legislative agenda. And that could also hold the dollar back, sort of keeping people from putting back on that Trump trade. Yep. Well, thanks for your, your, your commentary here, Mark. We're always looking forward to talking to you again. Thank you. Good luck. We'll be talking with Mark Chandler, BBBH currency strategist. We have Jason Pride, director of investment strategy at Glenmead Investments here in the studio. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. We'll be back after a short break. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree. I've got in the studio Jason Pride, the Director of Investment Strategy at Glenmead. Uh, so, Jason, on the first part of our program, we jumped right into a discussion on the Fed, on monetary policy, uh, had a nice nice discussion back and forth with Professor Siegel and Mark Chandler there. Maybe we could just step back about Glenmead, introduce your chance to talk a little bit more about yourself, your background at, at Glenmead, uh, and really who you guys oversee. Glenmead here in Philadelphia, so thanks for coming down to the studio right across town here. Always great to have people in the studio with us. Uh, and and Glenmead's a, a really a big, big firm. You guys manage about twenty five billion in in assets, approximately 30, thirty five now. Thirty five. A little bit We've higher than your numbers. last mark in the, got, uh, in the notes. We got a lot of old stale <laughs> number there. Sorry about that. Um, yeah. So talk a little bit about who your your clients that you serve, um, and and your focus of sort of when you overlook investment strategy there, how you're trying to put together that strategy for clients. So Glenmead Glenmead manages uh, assets for both families and uh, and high net worth individuals. Uh, that's about 70, 70% of our business. The other 30% is actually endowment and foundations-related uh, business. Um, in in those relationships, we tend to serve as an overall asset allocator, right? So seeing across equities and fixed income as well as more esoteric uh, investments, hedge funds, private equity, uh, commodities, real estate. So pretty across the board, uh, some of that. We have a good portion of that. We have the expertise to do in-house on the equities and fixed income side down to the security selection level. And in other portions of that, we actually uh, find uh, other managers that, that sub we basically sub-allocate to as, as part of our uh, allocations. Uh, I myself, as a head of investment strategy, I kind of – I get – I get to get my hands dirty in every single different aspect of that, from the equities to the fixed income to the macroeconomics and deciding the allocations uh, of that and also uh, interacting with the clients, which is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. So that's a highly overlapping stuff I do as well. Uh, we're also going to get to do those kind of discussions. I should I should also probably disclose Glenmead has been a client of Wisdom Trees in the, in the past. Um, we maybe talk a little bit about, as you think about, you just talked about how Glenmead can do security selection. Um 
as well as do, you know, hire outside managers. How do you think about, and and there's a whole big divide. We have this discussion a lot, active versus passive. Right. How do you view yourselves? Um, where do you think that discussion is going? How do you view the passive landscape? Is there too much passive? Where do you think the opportunities for active managers are? And then how do you think about that in terms of your clients? We think this is actually a good, has been a really good thing for the industry. So the number one thing that passive management has done for the industry is it's basically put cost pressures throughout the industry into place. And it's, it's forced a good amount of the industry to kind of grow up a little bit and bring their costs down into line where the rest of us were already kind of participating uh, along the way. Um, you know, in terms of allocating, I have to say we are pretty agnostic between going passive and, and active. What we're trying to do is we're trying to provide the best uh, after fee, after tax return for our investors. And, you know, sometimes that means using passive investments. Sometimes that means using active investments. You know, there is a, you know, a process basically takes into account what we think we can achieve by taking an active management stance, but we balance that against what the incremental cost is for taking that active management stance. I have to admit, it's kind of interesting to see it in the, uh, in the industry, there are times where you look at in the divide, the cost divide between active and passive management is like you could drive a Mack truck through it, right? In which case, yeah. you know, you, there's a pretty strong incentive to, to, to take a passive stance. Yep. Other times we look at it, you, you, you discover that it's five or 10 basis points difference in which you kind of scratch your head and wonder why would you ever consider taking a, 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 a passive oriented investment approach. Um, and now, so I, I'm all already kind of hinting at the fact that even if something's five or 10 basis points less in cost, I wouldn't consider it. Well, there's a reason for that. We think that a purely passive investment approach typically, which is market cap weighted invested investing, where you're basically kind of continuously owning things that run up the most, is a disadvantaged way to invest. If you, if you can avoid it at reasonable cost, you probably should be avoiding it if you can't. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I would agree with that statement. Um, <laughs> I mean, so where do you think about how you allocate this global pie today? I mean, the U.S., uh, as you think about a global acqui portfolio, it's been rising up. The U.S. has been rising up, outperforming the rest of the world. Um, how do you view the international markets versus the U.S.? And, and maybe is there any factors that you think are overly expensive today in that also context of what factors uh, maybe need too much attention? Well, there's a, there's a couple of things. I mean, that's a pretty loaded question. First, First thing that I would say is that that in a lot of cases, the U.S. market is the more efficient market where we hold a kind of a higher bar for active management. We, we need to see some pretty substantial evidence uh, in, in using an active manager uh, in that space. Internationally, interestingly, is still not quite as efficient as as the US markets even the developed markets Europe and and Japan and there therefore you know we see more examples of managers actually able to beat their benchmarks when we go internationally and the further you get from from the US when you dip into emerging markets you really see some some possibility for uh, active managers outperforming you also see interestingly the fee differences between active and passive is being way more compressed oddly enough so so that's that's a, kind of an interesting phenomenon on top of that uh, I would say that um, you know this is an there's always an opportunity to at least tilt the portfolios in the advantage of in, in the direction of certain markets from an equity perspective uh, we have been tilted 
towards international for for a considerable period of time. I wouldn't say it's a heavy tilt towards international, but the valuation uh, opportunities there are more robust. And even within that, we already discussed it a little bit earlier on, we have a couple of biases within that tilt. Uh, the two biases that we've had have been, number one, a bias towards uh, emerging market Asia-related mm-hmm. investments on the emerging market side, particularly surrounding the the Asian consumer. And then aside from that, we've taken a particular stance on, on Japan that's pretty long-standing for us. Uh, continues to this to this uh, this point in time, and um, and we don't see we actually it, while it goes through some oscillations and some pretty substantial oscillations, we don't see it slowing down uh, anytime soon. Yeah, I mean Japan sort of trades like an emerging market in a way with the volatility levels that it trades with the in the yen, it trades with U.S. interest rates. Um, I look at the valuations there; it's like we just did some rebalancing of our indexes, thirteen times earnings on our on, our, on one of our dividend-weighted strategies there, which is the lowest you're going to get in any developed market today. But the, And the active managers we speak to, well, hey, for 30 years, Japan's been a bear market. It's been cut in half from its highs 30 mm-hmm. years ago. But the active managers, I still don't believe. They're still habitually underweight. But, you know, it's it's coming around, though. It seems like it's coming around a little bit. I think the, it, it's interesting because we talk to a lot of people, and there's a handful of people that I feel like that that I talk to that still look at and say, oh, I don't, I don't want to touch Japan. Yeah, that's just a low return territory. And what's what's stuck in their head is, first and foremost, the poor returns that they've experienced for twenty or thirty years in that space. In fact, they've gotten used to ignoring it. Right. Number two is the fact that the return on equity within those companies has been abysmal forever. I yeah. mean, their businesses have just been fairly poorly managed. Uh, but at the same time, I look at it and. and I feel like for for companies that are evolving and coming back into the modern era there within within Japan, it seems like that's more and more today than ever before with how many companies are raising dividends, paying out, uh, buying back their own stock, um, you know, increasing their returns on equities. It, it, it feels like I feel like you've seen a number of times in, in the U.S. individual companies actually coming back from period of poor management for five or 10 years and all, all of a sudden kind of seeing the light of day of, oh, yeah, if we actually just stopped spending some of this capital that we didn't need to spend on bad projects and bought back stock and paid out dividends, all of a sudden our returns went up. Yeah, Fairly simple, kind of easy, low-hanging fruit decisions. Now you see a lot of companies, I think 60, 70% of Japanese companies are now increasing their dividends. Really remarkable pace. Yeah. You see a lot of them doing that. That's That's good for... An investment. The other thing that we've seen that I was surprised by is private equity activity in Japan. There's a lot of there's a surprising amount of private equity ac- activity in Japan, which um, I think puts pressure on the public companies. Yeah, no, I, I definitely can see a lot of those same trends, and I think it is one of the, the higher dividend growth markets around, which is good. Good to see the folks on shareholder shareholder returns. Let's talk about EM Asia in terms of where that is. I mean, I think. Uh, one of the stories this year has been just how strong some of these China tech companies have been. Sure. Things like Alibaba, Tencent, which I would actually classify as, as that Asian consumer in in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, how how else are you looking at Asian consumer? Is that do you think about the technology companies there? Do you think about 
What other part of Asia consumer we, attracts we, you? I have to say we did when the valuations were a little bit more reasonable. Yeah. We are at, at our heart, kind of at our deepest conscious, we have a we have a bit of a value bias yeah. in our approach. We prefer to be buying something that is fundamentally developing in the right way that has a decent valuation as opposed to be playing kind of hot potato with the, the, the latest hot growth stock and trying to pass it to a next, next investor before we get clocked. That's kind of our general bias. So we have we have positioned that way. Now, that's a space, I have to admit, that's a space where we feel there, there is a heavy value add uh, for an on-the-grounds kind of fundamental research uh, approach within within emerging markets, in particular Asia, in particular related to to the consumer, because it has a lot to do with consumer taste. Things that you you have a hard time measuring quantitatively: consumer taste, location of manufacturing, uh, um, how how the businesses are operating and interacting with their consumer base, uh, and 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 also seeing the quantitative uh, side of things. So it's. It's it's an area where we definitely drift towards the active management and the fundamental because we think we think the market is more ripe for that sort of management in the area and there's there's more than enough companies for them to pick from. Sure. So we're talking with Jason Pry, Director of Investment Strategy at Glenn Mead, a local Philadelphia uh, investment strategist here. Um, maybe we did, we haven't talked, but we, Mark touched on, you know, in his closing segment that we haven't talked a lot about politics, but how do you think about, if you think about major factors the U.S. markets are focused on, everybody's focused on tax reform is one of the key drivers of the U.S. markets. Uh, how do you look at that tax angle, and do you, do you think we're going to get something done? Does that impact how you would allocate to the U.S.? Wow. So, so there's, there's a loaded question. I'd say um, my first point would be the, the border-adjusted taxation discussion and, the, and, the, and the, the plan that was actually put out by the House Ways and Means Committee was a very interesting reform plan that, that would have been perhaps impactful for the economy and, and, and the markets longer term. Uh, it was very interesting. Um, had you asked me that question back in January February timeframe, I would have said that actually markets are are really expecting that to come through, that the probabilities seem to be higher, that the market's expectation set was was much higher at that point in time. Looking at it today based on, you know, market action, market internals action as to which companies would benefit to which companies would yep. would lose and and also just uh, uh, my general discussions with uh, with other investors in in our industry. I think the expectations now for that reform coming through is is basically rock bottom low at this point in time. Yeah, all the Trump trades reversed, non-existent, small caps underperforming. Right, technology, which was was which was a, a big kind of tax player, kind of moving the opposite direction. Yep. Your highest tax stocks uh, were were underperform or were outperforming going into January, February, yep. and now they're now they're underperforming essentially relative to their peers. We've basically seen the entire move unwind. You know, a lot of people ask me, well, why, if that's the case, why isn't the market backed off? And I think that's a fairly simple explanation. I think it's the handoff between the hope for the politics or for the political impact on corporations. Let's put it that way, not, yeah. not politics broadly. The hope for the political impact on corporations uh, basically doing a handoff to just straight up fundamentals. That earnings are improving. We had a great earnings quarter. Yep. Simple, simple as that. And that more than justifies the uh, the the upward uh, trend in the markets. I mean, so do you think 
given that the expectations, I mean, these things go in pendulums and so that now they're so low that now they're, people are undercounting that we actually might do something. Do you think they'll actually do something this year? Is it going to be next year? It, that'll, it, it's hard. The timelines, the timelines are starting to get squeezed. Yep. Right. They, the administration hasn't even managed to get a health care bill all the way through them. And, and we're talking about this at the, the tail end of June, which really kind of crimps their timeline for a tax plan. The things that they're talking about on the tax plan to do real tra- tax reform, you, you basically need one of two components, which are really large discussions. You either need the border adjusted taxation, which basically funds one third of the, the corporate tax rate cut. Uh, and the other side of it is is eliminating interest deductions for corporations, which is a whole I mean, you talk about something that could create some serious winners or losers within the yeah. corporate landscape. Fully leveraged businesses suddenly you know, effectively don't pay income tax on anything they pay out in, in interest. And all of a sudden you would reverse that the opposite direction that that could really drive a wedge in performance between between companies. The, the revenue neutrality is one of those big discussions. Are they going to get there? I mean, we've had budget border adjustment taxes discussions on the show a number of times here already. Um, you know, it's it's an interesting dichotomy. You could say, with given where interest rates are, why they press people said they should just forget this revenue neutrality. They should just test the market and see what happens to rates. They, they can't do it. They got, the Republicans they, won't. They can't. Well, you're going to have you're going to have to pass it through the Senate in order to pass it through the Senate in order to be filibuster proof. You either have to have one of two things. You either have to be able to amass sixty senator votes, or you have to pass it under reconciliation, right? In order to amass 60 senator votes, you're going to have to pull over people from the other side of the aisle, which seems to be fairly impossible for, for this administration uh, and this, this particular sort of plan. The, the other option is reconciliation, which requires budget neutrality, right? So it, yeah. it, if it's something's going to pass, it basically has to be budget neutral. Now, there's a nuance to that, which I refer to as fuzzy math. Dynamic Everybody scoring. else refers to it as dynamic scoring. Right. Is there's a little bit of a window here where you can you can move the numbers based on dynamic scoring of, of how it affects GDP. Now, calculations I've seen is you can only squeeze out between half a percent to three quarters of a percent of GDP in terms of extra deficit spending from that by by adjusting the dynamic scoring methodologies that will actually pass through and people will say, OK, that's somewhat legit. Right. So that's that only provides a little breathing room. Yeah. So we've got about four minutes left. Um, conversations go quickly. So uh, where would you say, uh, we, we haven't really talked about within the U.S., is there any parts, I mean, given a lot of people tend to be very focused on the U.S. markets, and we haven't talked about fixed income either, but any parts of the U.S. you really want to avoid today or things that you you find more attractive? So I have to admit, when we look at the, the equity markets, we are looking at the U.S. as being a little bit overvalued. It's sitting at about the 75th percentile of our valuation metrics relative to to normal levels when the international markets are actually sitting closer to, to fair value. That's our kind of bias to yep. be on the international international side. Because of that, our stance that we've been taking in the U.S. markets is to maintain a defensive stance. Uh, when we have equities, we're actually carrying a relatively full weight in U.S. equities. But the defensive stance is kind of an interesting twist to that. What, what does that mean? That means... Um, you know, in the kind of more basic sense, tilting a little bit towards the more stable companies or the more stable sectors, you know, companies within sectors or sectors themselves. That little bit of tilting can actually dampen the volatility. Aside from that, 
layering on some options mm-hmm. to just dull the edges of the yep. volatility of the stock market when it does come. feels like we haven't seen volatility in the stock market in a material degree for quite some time, though. Yeah, no, I, I've been seeing definitely interest in put writing type strategies, um, sort of the option strategies that you're talking about mm-hmm. there. Um, I mean, the defensive part that worries me is some of the more, I mean, the, the most lower volatility stocks, things like utilities, telecom, REITs, right. those tend to, I think, based on valuations, look more extended versus... The utilities themselves, yes, but but others don't. Others. You know, healthcare is still actually somewhat reasonably priced. Yep. While Staples is a little bit more more expensive, but th- you can actually dig within sectors yep. as well. We're we're a big fan of trying to get your defensiveness without giving up something else. You try not to give up return along the way, which basically means that you don't you don't just go whole hog and say, well, in order to get my defensiveness, I'm going to take half of my equities and put them in utilities. No, you try to keep it more sector neutral. You try to yeah. keep the the risks contained to somewhere in the ballpark of your normal positioning, but you tilt towards things that have a little bit more of a valuation bend to them and a little bit more of a, a stability bend to them. So in our final final countdown here, closing thoughts, we talked about a lot of different areas from the from the economy, the markets, a little bit of politics and passive active. Any closing thoughts or just framing who should either look for you guys at Glenn Mead or any other just closing thoughts? <laughs> that's a, that's a, also a broad question. I think I think our our biggest message for for people is this is this is an ongoing economic expansion. It doesn't seem like anything that's that's coming to a to a halt uh, anytime soon. Valuations on the equity side are are at least in the U.S. a little bit on the high side, and therefore a modestly defensive stance is 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 justified within an otherwise full equity exposure. That's the stance that we've been uh, we've been taking, and and if there are investors that are looking for uh, ways to do that, um, we are more than happy to to, to reach out and, and help out in any way that we can. All you have to do is reach out to us. Very good. So this has been a great conversation with Professor Siegel, Mark Chandler of Brown Brothers, Jason Pride, the Director of Investment Strategy. Glenn Mead, thanks for coming down to our studio here on, on Penn's campus. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Uh, thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Danielle Bruno. Uh, You can also now listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Thanks for for tuning in this week. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.